0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Terry Reel. Terry is an internationally recognized family therapist, speaker, and author. He founded the Relational Life Institute, offering workshops for couples, individuals, and parents across the country. He's the best-selling author of several books, including I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression, and The New Rules of Marriage. What you need to make love work. Which Sounds True? Terry Reel will be participating in our new Psychotherapy 2.0 online training summit. It takes place September 7th through the 13th. Each of the seven days of Psychotherapy 2.0 include two free 90 minute broadcasts with leading psychotherapist trainers, including Bessel van der Kolk, Stephen Hayes, Ellen Bader. Diana Fosha, and Jack Kornfield. And the entire series is hosted by a lead trainer in the world of trauma and attachment therapy, Diane Poole-Heller. For more information about Psychotherapy 2.0, Sounds True's new online training summit, please visit us at soundstrue.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Terry and I talked about relational recovery and the most important skills, we need to develop what he calls a full throttle relationship. We talked about the challenges in relationship when one person takes a position that is either one up, what Terry calls grandiose, or one down when we feel ashamed and how men and women can meet in a different way on equal footing. We also talked about Terry's approach to couples therapy and his view of why most conventional approaches to couples therapy are ineffective and what the distinguishing features are of the relational life therapy approach. Here's my conversation with Terry Reel. Terry, I'm so excited that you're going to be part of Sounds True's upcoming Psychotherapy 2.0, an online training summit that is really looking at the leading edge of psychotherapy and what can be learned by therapists today that's perhaps different than the way therapists were trained 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And what I'm curious to know right here at the outset is When it comes to couples work, what do you think is new in your experience, in your work, in the field of psychotherapy? What do we know now that maybe we didn't know 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago?
1: Oh, that's great, Jamie. First of all, thank you for having me uh, on on the uh, show. And um, I'm, I'm very honored to be here and pleased to uh, talk about my work. Um, uh, let me tell you some of the things where I break from what I learned. I, uh, about 15, 20 years ago, I started doing what I call relational interventions for couples on the brink of divorce who uh, hadn't been helped by any other therapy. And that's the bulk of my clinical practice now. People fly in from around the country, and we spend two days together. And at the end of two solid days together, we decide that you're either back on track or you're getting a divorce. This is the absolute last stop. And I got pretty good results. I'm not saying I healed everybody, but I did manage to pull the vast majority of couples off the ledge. And what I realized is that I was breaking most of the rules that I had learned in couples therapy about how to be a couples therapist. So here are a few things I do differently. One is, um, uh, I'm in it with you. Uh, I judiciously self-disclose. And when I say I, I mean me and all of the students that I've trained over the years in this method that we call relational life therapy or RLT. So all RLT therapists self-disclose. We're more like 12-step sponsors uh, than that blank screen. We talk from the authority of our own relational recovery Uh, over the years, and so I'll talk about a fight I might have had with my wife, or I'll talk about uh, issues with my kids, and I make a point of saying, see, we lose a great therapeutic school uh, uh, tool uh, by being neutral, by uh, hiding behind this professional mask. I can look at somebody, I could say, hey, you know, Tom, if you come from a dysfunctional culture, so do I, If you came from a dysfunctional family, so did I. And the skills that I use every day are the same skills that I'm downloading to you. And you know what? I used to be like you. I used to be depressed or self-medicating or angry like you, and I'm not anymore. And this is better. And what I want to tell you is if I can do it, you can do it. So let's get started. So one of the first real differences is we're emphatically in it with you. We're neither above you like an expert, nor are we following you like a facilitator. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one big difference.
0: Very good. I think I get that, and that's helpful. Wonderful.
1: Yeah. One one, one of the things I say, Tammy, is I can't teach somebody how to be relational without being relational with them. So uh, we're we're persons we're humans to our clients. Well, the and I think thing, you know is, just to say one comment I think ahead. that's
0: so helpful too. It gets rid of the cartoon therapist who's parroting back what you say and you know this blank screen that's just you know ping ponging back at you. And I think that's one of the kind of cartoon versions of therapists it's, that's was so yeah. frustrating to clients.
1: It was really frustrating. Which brings me to my second. Uh, thing, which is we teach, I teach. Uh, I differ from some other, even current, uh, particularly trauma people, who think once you remove the childhood traumas and the obstacles that people will intrinsically know how to be intimate. Uh, I believe that we live in a uh, patriarchal, narcissistic, addictive culture that has a lot of anti-relational bias in it. And within that culture, we just don't give our sons and daughters the skills that they need to have the kind of wonderful relationship we all want these days. So uh, I will tell people what to do. That's the other part of not being neutral. You know, somebody will say to me, I can't believe you did that. That really pissed me off. Blah, 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 blah. And I'll say, can I tell you what you just meant to say? Uh, Okay, sure. What you just meant to say is, when you go behind your wall like that, I really miss you. And I feel kind of helpless about how to re-engage. Isn't that what you meant to say? Yeah, that is what I meant to say. So I'm not shy about educating people. And we focus on three things. Accountability, vulnerability, and empathy. And I think part of what's revolutionary in the work I do is I believe you can teach people. You don't have to get into psychoanalysis for 15 years. We can teach people how to improve their character by uh, helping them be more connected to themselves and the people around them. So uh, we're teachers. We're coaches. And then I think the third uh, thing is that uh, we take sides. Uh, When I first learned couples therapy, it was the cardinal rule was thou shalt not take sides. And in particular, you would never side with a woman against a man. If you lost your quote-unquote neutrality, you had to go to your supervisor and talk about your mother for a while. And then you'd regain your neutrality and come back. We don't believe that all problems are 50-50. You can have let's say, uh, a woman married to a guy who is an untreated, alcoholic, bipolar, rager. And I'm going to tell you the problem is 99.1. Her uh, responsibility in this is that she's there. So we take sides, and we call it like we see it. Mrs. Jones, you're a nut, and Mr. Jones, (laughs) you're an even bigger nut, and here's why. Uh, And then the last thing I want to say that's really, I think, very different from what I learned and important is that uh, for 50-plus years, the field of psychotherapy and self-help and the human growth uh, potential movement has all focused on coming up from the one down position of shame. And that's, that's beautiful work. That's blessed work. But I also believe that in order to lead men and women into intimacy, you also have to know how to come down from the one up of grandiosity, superiority, entitlement, looking down your nose at somebody. And we've done a terrible job uh, helping people do that. I think that's one of uh, my contributions is really working with issues of grandiosity, and helping people come down. And that's particularly useful, I believe, with men. Uh, Because I think, this is a broad generalization, but I think that, generally speaking, men in our culture tend to lead in the one-up grandiose position and have covert issues of shame, whereas women tend to lead from the one-down chain position and have covert issues of grandiosity. We can talk about women's grandiosity if you want, but a man's grandiosity literally hits you over the head. So I think that uh, I need to arm uh, the grandiose client, man or woman, uh, on how to recognize what's going on, how to uh, lean into what's going on, and how to come down off their high horse and really enter into connection and relationship.
0: Now, Terry, I want to unpack this a little bit because this last point especially is not something I've heard before, so I really want to understand it. So someone's listening and they're like, do I have a grandiosity problem? Does my partner have a grandiosity problem? How would I know? How would I identify this in a relationship, either in myself or in my partner?
1: Well, normally when we talk about self-esteem issues, we talk about shame. We talk about somebody in the one-down inferior position. And after 50 years, we were pretty acquainted with what that feeling defective, feeling unlovable, feeling like there's something wrong with you, feeling less than, not as good as. The uh, grandiose position is the other side of that coin. So it's feeling superior, feeling entitled, feeling above the rules, feeling contemptuous of the people around you or of one person around you, feeling better than. Uh, it, It really is just the flip side of the inferiority of shame.
0: Okay, a couple comes to you and you're identifying, aha, we have a shame or a grandiosity issue at play here. How do you see that and how do you point it out?
1: Well, um, to understand how to work with grandiosity, I think it helps to uh, fade back a bit and just say a few words about the difference between grandiosity and shame because it will determine how you work with it. The, the, The guilty secret about grandiosity is that it doesn't feel bad. Shame feels bad. You're in pain. You want to get out of it. Grandiosity actually feels pretty good in the moment it feels good to feel superior it feels good to you know haul off and tell your boss to shove it it feels good to make out with your secretary at the water cooler all these are acts of superiority and grandiosity being above the rules and they feel good in the moment even though they create a lot of trouble for you the second thing which is related is that grandiosity impairs judgment It impairs your sensitivity to the impact you're having on others, and it impairs your awareness of the negative consequences of your behavior. So, for example, uh, the psychiatrist here in Boston, George Valiant, once said, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's a guy who walks into an elevator, gets claustrophobic, and turns green. There's a guy who walks in an elevator, lights up a big, fat stogie, and everybody around them turns green. That's the difference between shame and grandiosity. Shame-based people have pain. Grandiose-based people have troubles. The pain is really between them and their environment. The people around the grandiose person are in pain. So one thing is that I like to work with grandiose people in the context of their relationships. I want the other guys in the elevators in my room with me. So I'm talking about partners, wives, husbands, and even kids. The other thing is that I want to empower the partner of the grandiose person to stand up to that person. This is called leverage. And uh, what I uh, teach my students is if you're working with a grandiose person because they don't feel particularly bad and their judgment is impaired, they're not in a lot of pain about what's going on with them. And you have to answer the same question that's on their mind, which is, why should they put up with you? And that's leverage. Leverage means you have something in your back pocket that they want, like a happy, sexier wife, for example. And you stand between them and negative consequences they don't want, like sleeping on the couch for the next three months. The other great source of leverage in the, your kind of opening gambit with a grandiose client is the kids you know what bill what kind of father did you have what kind of father do you want to be you know it must really kill you to realize that in this family you have become your father what's your relationship with your father what kind of relationship do you want your kids to have with you you know we have a saying pass it back or pass it on, if we don't wrestle this together, the people are going to be most damaged by that are your children. Is that what you want to see happen here? So it's all about motivating, opening up the eyes of the grandiose person so they see what they're doing and they don't feel good about it anymore. They feel motivated to change. That's the first order of business. And that's the one, frankly, that most therapists skip over. Once you have the grandiose person saying, okay, I guess I'm grandiose, okay, I can look down my nose at my wife, I can be contemptuous of her, okay, I can skate above the rules, Uh, then the next step is to create some distance between that person and his or her grandiosity. This is not you. This is a part of you. There's some daylight between you and these bad traits that we can work with. You can hold them at arm's length and you have some choice about whether you want to go with them or whether you want to lean in and try something different. So first it's about empowering the spouse and then it's about empowering the grandiose person.
0: Now, I'm curious, how, as a practitioner, did you start identifying this pattern? What were you witnessing in these couples that came to you? And Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, not to be too flip, but I'd like to say uh, I first learned how to do family therapy when I was about four years old with my own dysfunctional family. I had a grandiose father. Uh, I had a covertly shame-based, overtly grandiose father who was violent psychologically and to some degree physically as well. And I really learned how to become a therapist in order to figure out my father and what to do with him because I knew in my guts that if I didn't find a way to make sense out of him that I was doomed to repeat him in some way which I think is true. You know one of the things I say is family pathology, Grandiosity, violence, rolls from generation to generation like a fire. It takes down everything until one person in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames. That person brings peace to those who came before and spares the children in generations that come after. That person transforms the legacy. And particularly when I had my own children, I was determined... That by hook or crook, I was going to be that person. And I really went into the field of therapy to heal myself and, in some ways, to try and heal my dad. That's the first, that's where it first came to me. And I knew that um, what was going down in the world of therapy was not going to touch my dad's superiority and my dad's lashing out. Uh, My dad's entitlement. My dad's being above the rules. Um, I needed a way. I started working with men uh, primarily on this issue of grandiosity. Now I work with both. But I started off with guys, and I needed a way to uh, confront them with love. I needed a way to uh, see in the field there were kind of feminists uh, therapies, domestic violence therapies that held the guy's feet to the fire, but they weren't very empathic or loving to him. And then there was a the whole rest of the field of psychotherapy that was full of empathy and love and all that reflection, but it acted like they never heard of male privilege in their lives. And I needed to tell the truth to these men and let them feel like I was loving them and holding them both in the same Time, and that's actually become one of the real hallmarks of uh, of my work and our work, which is telling the truth with love. And uh, most people don't know how to do it, and frankly, most therapists don't do it. They lean on the love part, and they're a little shy on the truth part. Uh, so, um, what evolved for me was a technique I call joining through the truth, telling the truth. To grandiose men and women in a way that not only didn't put them off, but left them feeling like you were rooting for them, you were on their side. Look, you know what? You didn't ask for this. This is is a legacy from childhood. Uh, It's ruining your life. It's damaging your family. You're a decent guy. I've been with men who are not decent to the bone. They're cold. But you're not. You're warm. You listen to me. You laugh at my jokes. I feel connected. You're a nice guy. I'll tell you what's so sad. Oh, philanderer or rager or drinker or whatever you are. I'll tell you what's sad. I'm talking to a nice guy who has behaved indecently for the last 20 years. Will you let me extricate you from all this nonsense? Now, who's going to say no to that? So the essence was separating the grandiose traits from the decent person underneath and forming an alliance with that decent guy or gal underneath to stand up to this and change the legacy they inherited.
0: Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, Terry, that your work with grandiosity began with men, but now you also work with women who yes. express these grandiose tendencies. And, you know, without getting too stereotyping of men are like this, women are like that, because I don't want to even ask the question in a way that makes it sound like we live in this complete binary world. But what are you seeing in your work with women?
1: Well, first of all, a lot of women do not primarily ride in the grandiose position. A lot of women need real help. Uh, coming up from that one down position and, you know, not to be cliched, but to find their voice in the relationship. Um, Let me say something about that because what what happens is, uh, you know, over the course of the last 50 years and the women's movement and all that empowerment, one of the things I ask uh, folks as I travel around the country is this, what's the one value that's shared by mainstream patriarchal culture and virtually all of the counterculture movements and growth movements, spirituality, psychotherapy, 12-step. You you know what it is? It's the value of the individual. And uh, what happens to people in general and women in particular is they move from being disempowered to what I call being personally empowered. And I uh, somewhat teasingly say, that move is, I was weak, now I'm strong, go screw yourself. You know, I was weak, now I'm strong, now I'm going to open up and uh, open my throat and speak any old way I want to and really let you have it. And you got a lot of support in the culture, particularly for women, of individual personal empowerment. You go, girl, don't put up with it. The next step, I believe, is what I call relational empowerment. That means I was weak. Now I'm strong. I'm going to bring my full voice into this relationship. I'm going to stand toe-to-toe with you, with love, and I'm going to help you succeed. I want you to succeed. I love you. And relational empowerment has a completely different vocabulary and particularly, particularly a different energy a much more loving energy than individual empowerment. So the work for women is a lot about moving out of disempowerment for sure, but also moving down from the one up of that individual empowerment, softening the voice, cherishing the relationship, cherishing the husband, even as you stand up to him. So let me, can I give you a clinical example? Sure. What that sounds like? Yeah. Yeah. um, you, you know what? I'm not going to do a clinical example. I'll do one for my own life. This is where I learned this. I learned this. It just came to me in one moment in my life. I was with my friend Alan. We had had a fight. Uh, I don't need to go into the details of the fight, but he, he, we were over, my wife and kids and I were over his house for a barbecue, and I let him have it. And he turned to me, and he was visibly shaking. I mean, this was an intense uh, emotion on both sides. And here's what he said to me. I I won't forget it. He said, "Terry, the first and most important thing I want to tell you is that I love you. You're one of my best friends, and you're going to be one of my best friends for the day we die. That has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. Now the rest of what I want to say is this. I've invited you to my home. These are my kids. This is my wife. That's my barbecue." You come into my home and you bring that kind of energy, that angry, self-righteous energy onto my porch. I want to tell you, I have spent my whole life divesting of that energy. I grew up with it. I don't have it and my family doesn't have it. Now, I can't control you, Terry. You have the right to do what you want. But I want you to know that every time you bring that energy into my world, I'm going to tell you how very much I don't like it. And let me tell you, brother, I don't like it. That's relational empowerment. Loves me, cherishes me, and stands up to me all in the same breath. That's what I want to teach women. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to tease out one phrase Terry, that you said in the very beginning of our conversation, you said that you share with your clients about your own, quote, unquote, relational recovery. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. Relational recovery, people talk about other kinds of addictions and recovering from an addiction. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that phrase that you've gone through relational recovery.
1: Well, I believe that we live in a patriarchal culture, that the traditional roles for men and women while they're changing are far from change and that those traditional roles uh, preclude intimacy. Marriage was never built for intimacy. Marriage was built for real estate and for investment and for help with labor and stability. This idea that we're going to be lifelong lovers, heart-to-heart talks and great sex in 50, 60 and beyond, this is a brand new idea. And the old roles and the old rules just don't deliver on that ambition. So both men and women, I believe, are knocked out of real connection and intimacy with themselves and others. If you read the literature on women's psychology, Jean Baker Miller, Carol uh, Gilligan, the Stone Center, women, uh, young women, are knocked out of real, honest connection at the edge of adolescence, at the edge of womanhood. And they stop telling the truth. And instead they uh, move into uh, too much uh, uh, amelioration and uh, adaptation and accommodation to what's going on. It's what Carol Gilligan calls the tyranny of the nice and kind. And they lose their voice. That's changing, but it still needs work. boys, are knocked out of authentic connection. Do you want to take a guess about at what age?
0: Uh, let's say five or six.
1: You got it. A little younger, three, four. Three, four, five, and six. By the time boys have entered kindergarten, they've already internalized the code. They are what research tells us is they're no less emotional than girls at that age, or sensitive, but they're less expressive. They've learned to keep their mouth shut. They've learned to wall it off. So boys learn to separate from their vulnerable selves and adopt the masculine code at three, four, five years old. And what is that code? The essence of what it means to be a man in the traditional setup is to be invulnerable. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are. The more vulnerable you are, the more girly you are. And the problem is that being invulnerable leaves no room for real intimacy. We connect through our vulnerabilities. So now what's happening across the board, I believe, is that women all over the West are asking for levels of vulnerability and emotional intimacy from their men that boys and men have not been raised to deliver. Now, that's different depending on how young we're talking about. Millennials are different, thank goodness. Uh, but the rest of us are still suffering under the old code. And one of the things I say is that leading men and women into real intimacy is synonymous with leading them out of patriarchy. The political is personal. Every single couple that I see is... uh Foundering on the rocks of the old code In one form or another And need to be freed up of it So, me included uh, I grew up with a grandiose uh, Overtly grandiose, covertly shame-filled father I grew up with a mother Who stood by and did not protect my brother and me uh, I call that the unholy triad of patriarchy uh, Irresponsible man unhappy woman, boy, sensitive in the middle, feeling both of their pain. And that was me. And I was depressed and I self-medicated with alcohol and drugs and women. I acted out. I was narcissistic. I was not that easy to get along with. And I had to break all of those structures down and reconfigure them in order to be happy inside my skin And to have a happy family, which, knock wood, thank you, spit three times, I have. But I earned it. No one gave it to me. And again, if I can do it, you can do it.
0: One of the things, Terry, I've heard from, really from people I know, from friends of mine, is, you know, Tammy, you're such a proponent of therapy, but when it comes to solving relationship issues, couples issues, God, in my experience, therapy just doesn't work. I've been to therapists before, (laughs) me and my partner, blah, 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 and it just doesn't work. You know, you're lucky. You have a, a happy marriage. Good on you. You found the right partner. But just stop suggesting therapy, please. And I'm curious what you think about that viewpoint, which I think is a lot of people hold.
1: Yeah, well, this is where I can start to sound grandiose and narcissistic. Uh, But the truth is, I run around the country uh, doing workshops and lectures for therapists, and I say that there are some serious design flaws in couples therapy. And this, you know, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, tell me more about it, gee, I'm sorry you feel like that, The traditional therapy we've all been trained in just doesn't do anything for uh, a couple that's either too distant or fighting. It just isn't active enough. So in the therapy that I do, I get in, I lovingly confront the issues, I name things. Um, I had a guy in my office just before this call who was raised by two alcoholics. He uh, was raised by a raging dad. He doesn't rage. He's passive aggressive. He expresses his anger by shutting down and going away. But he does it to his wife. He does it to his kids. He's done it for 30 years. The kids are now grown. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And he's been in denial for uh, decades. I look at this guy, and the first thing I say to him is, she's right about you. You give little, you've been really selfish for 30 years, and you've been difficult to live with. And now the bill is due, and your family doesn't want much to do with you. Uh, I can understand how you develop that way coming from where you come from. But if you grew up in a miserable childhood, in order to get from that miserable childhood to the happy, healthy relationship you deserve demands a lot of personal work and that means help that means therapy from the outside but i do believe frankly that much therapy is not particularly effective i wish i could say something different but there are talented therapists of many different schools there's much more active therapy than the tradition and um if you look hard enough, you can find somebody. If push comes to shove, that to be whatever. You can go to my website, and there are RLT therapists all over the country now. So I have faith in them.
0: Now, you've been talking, Terry, about men and women in relationship, and here we are in the age of marriage equality for gay and lesbian couples. And I'm curious yeah. if you work with gay and lesbian couples and how you think that affects some of your theoretical work, if you will, and how it's changing your approach,
1: Uh, if at all. Great. These are wonderful questions. I do work with same-sex couples. I I haven't worked much with transgender folks. It just hasn't been. But I have worked a fair amount with same-sex couples. And one of the things I say to my students about same-sex couples is remember two things. The first to remember is while, well, again, while it's changing, it isn't changed. You are dealing with an oppressed minority, and oppression has consequences. So, when I'm working with a gay or lesbian couple, I'm really interested in their coming out stories. How did you first know you were gay or lesbian? What was that like for you? You know, when did you first begin to fantasize? When did you first begin to experiment? What, who was the first person you told? Did you feel okay about it? Were you ashamed of it? And you're going to get a narrative if you just open that up. Everybody's got a story and a deep, uh, heartfelt story. So um, you have to understand that uh, this is breaking open for the first time in history. People were killed for being gay or lesbian and still are in countries around the world. The second thing to remember is that you're dealing Are you ready? You're dealing with a same-sex couple, two men or two women. And without going into a lot of stereotypes or generalities, there are often differences between men and women. Straight people sometimes have a fantasy that because you're gay or lesbian that you've broken out of patriarchy and you've broken out of all those strictures. But it's just not true. Two men look a lot like two men, and two women look a lot like two women. Look at the difference between gay sex and lesbian sex. I mean, you don't see women going to bathhouses. Mm-hmm. Uh, men, gay men act like men. And uh, once you start to get the way that our culture shapes men and women, of course, there's lots and lots of variation and exception. Don't pigeonhole people. But there are forces that come to play, and uh, they're, uh, they're more operative in a same-sex couple, not less operative.
0: Now, you talk about something, Terry, that I I read in a blog post that you wrote called a full-throttle marriage, that it's possible for us to have a full-throttle marriage. And I thought, okay, that's a great phrase. I think most couples Mm -hmm. are looking for a marriage that they can feel positive about, you know, and they're like, great, I feel positive about my marriage. I'm in a very small percentage <laughs> of people. Full throttle marriage. Yeah. I don't know. That's a myth. That's a myth. So first of all, tell me what you mean about having a full throttle marriage. And then I'd love to know what are the most important skills so that I can have oh, one.
1: marvelous. Terrific. Well, <clears throat> by full throttle marriage, I mean, connected and alive. You know, when you ask people why they had affairs, universally, uh, with all the different things they say and all the different explanations, they'll say, it made me feel alive. And what happens in so many marriages is deadness starts to creep in. And I believe that the reason why we settle with each other in these ways is because we stop taking each other on. We stop telling the real truth to each other. We don't know how. It doesn't go well when we try often. So we, uh, we back it up. We say, I can live with this. We make compromises that are beyond what we really want. We start building up resentment. And all of that shuts down passion and shuts down generosity. You know, if I'm angry at you because you've been pissy with me for the last two days, but I don't say a word about it, You come to me and want to make love and, you know, I've got a headache. Uh, It just comes out sideways. So I talk about what I call fierce intimacy, fierce intimacy. And it's that same thing that I developed with clients, telling the truth to somebody in a way that makes them feel you're on their side and you love them. At the same time, you're standing up to what's dysfunctional and you're putting your foot down and saying, these are the things I want and need from you. And then the relational question is, what can I give you to help you give them to me? So uh, it's about rolling up your sleeves, working with the person you've really got instead of the one you dream of and deserve, but working with the uh, imperfect character you're stuck with and leaning into that person and finding a way to deal with each other uh, so that uh, if something's awry, you can get back on track rather than just let it sit and fester. To me, that's the most important single skill.
0: How much do you think of having this full-throttle marriage, if you will, or just a really terrific marriage, is, quote-unquote, skill-based versus, like, you know, I got lucky and met my soulmate? Or is it more like, hey, look, (laughs) you know, I needed to develop— I mean, you used an interesting phrase in your own life, I earned— the life yeah. that you have with your family and your wife. Yeah. How much is about a learning process, a skill building process? All of it,
1: all of it. And, and what I would say is, oh, I'm lucky I found my my soulmate. Now let's not screw it up over the next 30 years. And the picking a good partner is great. And that early passion uh, in the relationship is great. When I have a couple... And one of them says to me, usually in private, you know, the truth is I never really loved this person anyway. I got married for my parents or it looked good on paper or I was pregnant. That's trouble. But most people start off with an authentic, passionate connection. The skills come in to keep that authentic, passionate connection. And yes, there is a relational technology, how to speak how to listen, how to bring a partner who is in disrepair with you back into harmony with you. There are some basic skills that um, most people in our culture simply haven't mastered. That would have been fine 50 years ago when a nice, companionable marriage would have been enough. But if you want What we want now is we want a lifelong lover relationship with each other. And if that's what you want, then yes, there's a repertoire of skills for you to master in order to meet that new sophisticated ambition. If your ambition is going to be historically brand new, then the skills you use to implement it better be historically new along with it.
0: Now, you mentioned the skill of taking a relationship that's from a state of disharmony back into harmony. And so I'm imagining yeah. someone who's listening who said, you know, look, there's some clear disharmony in my relationship. What skill is Terry pointing to? What do I need to do here? What's the talent I need? Well, the
1: person who's in disharmony, I mean, this is a short version. You know, I do whole workshops on this, and, and I wrote a book on on this. But the, the short version is... Um, the skill of the person who's in disarray needs is to open up their mouths and speak and speak in a way that's clean from the I, not the you, uh, that's forward looking. These are the things I would like, not just complaining about what's gone wrong, but helping your partner get a sense of what right would look like. Uh, and then having, uh, the, the good heart, the good will, to really wish your partner well. It's what I call remembering love. Remember that the person you're speaking to is someone you love and not the enemy. And the reason why you're speaking is to make things better, not to prove a point or control thing. On the other side, uh, the person who's on the receiving end of a partner who's in disrepair, I talk about what I call relational jujitsu. And we could do a whole talk just on that. But in the West... What we're taught is you take the hit full in the chest, and then you hit back, and the last man standing wins. In the East, the way it goes is somebody comes at you with a, a ferocious energy. You step a quarter of an inch out of the way, give a flip, and they go right by you. That's what I teach people to do. So, for example, I, I say to guys, uh, and this is a bit facetious, but I say to guys, hey, look, I have a way. I have a method of disarming an upset, angry woman within seconds, 50% of the time. It doesn't work all the time, but hey, 50 percent's not bad. You know what it is? You want to guess what it is, Tammy? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Give her what she's asking for. That sounds like that'll work. Yield. Yield. Surrender. Be generous. Be accountable. Don't be defensive. Let go of your pride. Go under the wave, not in the wave. Find something in what this person is saying that you can be accountable about and find something in what they're asking for that you can give them. And be generous. Be generous of heart. Now, the person on the other end may be asking for the moon. You know, My wife might say to me, Terry, you left the milk out of your refrigerator again. You're just like your dad. You're a slob. I've asked you not to do that in front of the kids. And what I want is I want you to go into psychoanalysis about this uh, five (laughs) days a week for the next at least four years. I want you to say you're sorry to me and the kids, and I want you to get another milk carton. And my response is you're absolutely right. I did it. It's the sort of thing I can do. I can be sloppy. I can understand why you're upset about it. You know what? I am going to say I'm sorry to you and the kids, and I'm going to have that milk tea in the next 10 minutes. The psychoanalysis part, forget it. What most people do is they lead with what they disagree with and what they're not going to give their partner. That is dumb. So I teach people to scan for agreement, scan for peace, and make peace with your partner. Find something to agree to, something you can give them, something you can be accountable about, and disarm them. That's a way of helping an unhappy partner get happier with you.
0: Terry, I know you've done some teaching work with Esther Perel, and her work yes. talks about keeping the sexual fire alive in relationships. And I'm, I'm wondering, yes. in terms of this quest for fierce intimacy, what you have to add specifically to this question of how do we keep our sexual level of full throttle contact, if you will, alive and engaged? Well,
1: um, I agree with Esther's main point, which is we get too cozy with each other, you know, the, uh, the oxy, uh, oxytocin sets in and we get cuddly and uh, kind of uh, lose. I, I talk to people about what I call side-by-side energy and nose-to-nose energy. It's like a cross, a vertical line that's nose-to-nose and a horizontal line that's side-by-side. Now, nose-to-nose energy is when the couple's main concern is itself, The relationship, you're gazing into each other's eyes. You're kind of narcissistic, like new relationship. You're a little obnoxious to be around. Side-by-side energy is about maintaining connection over time. It's about being responsible and straightforward and skilled and so forth. Nose-to-nose energy is exciting. It's intense. It's very present in the moment. It's very erotic. Side-by-side energy is domestic. It's responsible, it's stalwart, and it's boring. And all couples in the West, at least, need to find ways to pull themselves out of that side-by-side back into the nose-to-nose So, because you can't have sex from side to side very mechanical maybe, but by and large, people have to transition into that encounter with each other to get the erotic juices going. The easiest way and most common way is leave the kids and go away for a romantic weekend. But you have to find a way to really connect with each other in the middle of the life you're in. So the first order of business is taking this seriously. I like to talk to men and women about keeping a little erotic energy at play, as you go through your day. You know, this happens in affairs. It's one of the characteristics of an affair. It's hot. It's sexy. And, you know, there are little dirty notes and so on and so forth. Do that with your spouse. Walk over to your spouse, assuming uh, that your sex life is reasonably okay and nobody's feeling bullied or anything. Walk over to your spouse and give them a nice kiss on the neck or whisper something in their ear, or tell them how excited you are just thinking about them today. Keep a, lot, a little bit of that lover. If you want to be lovers, be lovers. Act like a lover. So get yourself out of that side-by-side energy and pull yourself into a little romance. That's one. Two is tell the truth to each other. And um, three is a little constructive distance or mystery can go a long way. That's Esther's hit record. And uh, it's very European, and uh, it's really quite lovely. So those three things are what I would say.
0: I'm curious, Terry, here you are. You've talked a little bit about your family life and your wife and you're, you know, a public figure, if you will, talking about how to make a marriage work really well. And I would imagine that would put a lot of pressure on you in your own married life and family life to really walk the talk. And so I'm curious sort of how that's going for you, the pressure. Do you feel pressure <laughs> about that? And then what part is the hardest for you in terms of walking your talk?
1: Oh, gosh, he's a really transient question. Um, you don't mind if I take a break and go to the bathroom? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, how do I walk it? To... Well... My wife, Belinda, is a family therapist like me. She, like me, comes from a terrible trauma background. And we have to use these skills or we get into trouble. One of the things I say to the couples I work with is if Belinda and I don't use the same skills we're teaching you, then we look just as ugly as you do. And we do upon occasion. You know, we'll yell and scream and take a time out and I'll sleep in Uh, one of the kids' rooms. I mean, we're we're, uh, normal human beings, and uh, couples do fight. You know, there's a saying, there are two kinds of couples in the world. There are distant couples and fighting couples. Uh, I say hot couples and cool couples. Belinda and I are a hot couple. There's a lot of passion, and uh, on a bad day, there's a a fair amount of uh, fighting as well. Both of us have learned to manage it. We take timeouts, we take breaks. We uh, take, a, either of us, we'll take a walk around the block, um, have a little chat with our inner children who have seemed to have grabbed the wheel, and uh, come back when we're centered in our adult cells again. Uh, that happens fairly regularly, that we have to take a time out and take a break and regroup and, and come back to our senses. That, that, I don't feel a lot of pressure, to be honest. Being a public figure about this, primarily because to to be dead honest, my wife and kids mean more to me than my career does. So uh, I don't want to fight with Belinda because the primary thing is it's really upsetting to me when we do, and I'd rather have a nice evening. That's my motivator. You know what kind of evening are we going to have? I could be one of the things I say is you could be writer, you can be married. I could be right and stick to my guns and fight with you all night, or I can do some of that jujitsu and let go of my stiff-necked pride, come to you and say, honey, I don't want to fight. I'm sorry. What do you need? Let's get out of this. Let's make up. And I choose door B because that's where I want to be. Um, Thinking about my career in those moments, that really is a secondary mm-hmm. issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that occasionally you'll sleep in, you know, on the couch or in one of the kids' rooms, something like that. And in one of your yeah. blog posts, I thought this was really interesting. You were like, you know, I want to dispel this myth of don't go to bed angry, which is one of the toasts that, of course, you hear at people's weddings. They say, let me wish for you what my grandparents wished for me, never go to bed angry. And here you are saying, hey, come on, that's not the most important wish we can bring to a newly married couple. Can you explain that to me? Well, Belinda and I go to bed angry every
1: once in a while, uh, uh, on a fairly regular basis over our 30-year marriage. And uh, it, it happens to work for us that we both have a good night's sleep, wake up, and we're less uh, entrenched in our position. Uh, the uh, the break that comes from sleep and waking up together. We look at each other in the morning and go, "I, I don't even remember what that fuss was about. How you doing?" So uh, I think it's sometimes very helpful to sleep on it and uh, come back in, in, in a new day. There are all sorts of, you know, this culture doesn't deal with the blood and guts of real marriage. I talk to people about what I call normal marital hatred. and I've been doing this for 20 years. Not one person has ever come up to me and said, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Marriage is hard. The dark night of the soul in your marriage is dark. And we don't acknowledge that in our culture. You know, don't go to bed angry. Don't ever be angry. It's, uh, there's a, a myth of, we, there are three phases in a relationship, harmony, disharmony, and repair. The early stage, the disillusionment, and mature love. And in our culture, we've frozen that harmony phase, and that's a good relationship. You know, just like a good body is a 17-year-old body or a good sex life is passion seven days a week. You know, we, we freeze these ideal images, and we don't deal or give people the skills they need to deal with the blood and gut real reality of being an imperfect being rubbing shoulders with another imperfect being. It's tough.
0: Fierce intimacy. I like it. Terry, I think you're saying something here in this conversation that's been, I think, quite eye-opening versus the myth, the myth of the frozen 17-year-old body harmony version. Now, I'm really happy, Terry, that you're going to be part of our Psychotherapy 2.0 online training summit, as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation. It's a seven-day training summit online Listeners have two free 90-minute sessions per day, really with some of the leading trainers of psychotherapists in today's world, including der Kolk, Stephen Hayes, Jack Kornfield, Ellen Bader. This is all being hosted by Diane Poole-Heller, who is a leading trainer in the field of trauma and attachment therapy. And the title of your presentation as part of the Psychotherapy 2.0 Online Training Summit, is working with trauma in couples therapy, healing inner child parts. And I'm wondering if you can give our listeners a sense of what this training session will be like, working with trauma in couples therapy.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the the issue is the skills are great, and they really are great, and they need to be part of the mix. But when somebody's triggered when they're flooded by a child ego state or child feelings, all bets are off. One of the things I say is one of the most important questions is, which part of you is speaking? Is it the adult present part of you, or is it some triggered inner child part of you that's grabbed the wheel? And so another part of the work, the three parts of the work I do, one is loving confrontation. Three is education. And two is trauma work and working with your inner children. Um, let me see. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll give you a flavor of what, that, what that's like, although it can be very experiential, eyes closed, bring your child into the room, talk to your child and all that. But it can be also just conversational. So here's the story. A couple comes to see me. It's a typical he said, she said. He says that she's irresponsible, selfish, and kind of a flake. She says that he's a brute. So I drill down and get examples from each. How is she a flake? Well, she's late sometimes, and she's, uh, she forgets things. And Okay, how is he a brute? Well, in the last two weeks, he called me the C-word. He physically blocked my exit when I tried to take a time out, and he spit on my windshield. I say to him, you spit on her windshield? He says, yeah. He said, but you don't know what she was saying to me before. You don't expect me to sit there and take it, do you? I look at him. I let the pause gather some momentum. And then I say to him, I don't know, but I suspect you don't know the difference between standing up for yourself and attacking somebody. That gave him pause. I then said, Who was the angry one in your family growing up? You go through the stance up to the generation above. My father, tell me about it. Uh, He was a mess. He was angry all the time. He would come home and you would scatter because God help you if it got in his way. Where was your mother? Why didn't she protect you? Uh, She worked a lot and she was a doormat. She was useless in this department. In fact, not only did she not protect me, but I'm the one who protected my little sister. What did you do? I used to lock her in the basement. Don't get the wrong idea. It was a finished basement. I had toys and video games, but I kept her out of harm's way. I said, how old was she? Three. How old were you? Five. I look at the guy and I say, you know, I don't know. But my guess is there is some five-year-old version of you that felt something like, hey, Dad, if you lay one God-forsaken hand on my sister, I'll kill you. He said, that's exactly what I felt. I said, how did I know that? He said, okay, I'll bite. How did you know that? I said, because you defend yourself like an angry five-year-old. Will you let me work with that five-year-old and teach him how to calm down teach you how to calm him down and have you be an adult to your wife and not a child. And he said, bless his heart, I think we better. That's inner child work.
0: Very powerful, very helpful. Yeah.
1: You are responsible for that little person inside of you. And maturity comes when you manage that little person and don't inflict him or her on your partner to manage.
0: Powerful. It seems like one of the things that you do in your couple's work is that you really combine deep individual work with work on the relationship and that that's unique. You don't say, oh, you know, you have a trauma. We're going to take this over here to your individual therapy. But you do it right there with the couple.
1: I do. And you know what? It's so much more powerful that way. It's so much more intimate. I'll tell you, you are a wife with, let's say, an angry husband who was raised by an angry mother or father, and you've been mystified for 30 years about why this person's such an SOB. In the session, that person is now doubled over in pain, crying, talking to his little boy or girl that was so savage. And you're sitting next to that person. I got to tell you, you're also crying. You are moved. How different is that from this guy? Because he says, How is therapy? Yeah, yeah, it was heavy. We did a lot of good work. What's for lunch? Uh, It's much more intimate for the couple to be there. And the idea used to be, this is another rule I broke from therapy school. The idea is that people won't go deep in front of their partners. And I think that's nonsense. Unless the partners really mean, people will go deeper with the support of their partner sitting next to them. So, yes, I don't peel off character work or trauma work to an individual therapist, I do it in the presence of the partner as part of the couple's work. That's what I'll be talking about in, uh, in the Psychotherapy
0: 2.0. I just have one final question for you, Terry. One of the themes that has an undergirding, if you will, our whole conversation is the cultural context in which we live and in which many of us grew up 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago in our families, and as you named it, the expectations, the patriarchy, if you will, expectations of men, expectations of women. What is your hope for the kind of cultural changes that could result from the type of therapeutic work that you do with couples?
1: Mm. Oh, that's beautiful, Tammy. You know... I want women to enter into full voice and empowerment with love. And I want men to come down off their perch and open their hearts and listen and respond with flexibility. And I think it's new territory for both sexes. Uh, I, I do want to say I'm a big fan of millennials. And millennials are doing better than, for example, baby boomers where divorce is really rampant. And millennials have moved a little bit out of the old roles. Millennial men expect two career families. They expect to work around the house. They expect to share decisions with their partner. They're less patriarchal. And uh, research is really clear that the more traditional the marriage is, the less happy the marriage is. The more egalitarian the marriage is, the more satisfied both partners are. So there's a new paradigm uh, over the hill. The light is breaking. Dawn is coming. I think we're in an icky transition period where women want more from men than most men have been trained to deliver. But I think it's a transition. And I think the answer is not to have women stand down from their demands for real intimacy, but help men stand up and open their hearts and meet it Uh, I feel very optimistic about where we're
0: headed. I've been speaking with Terry Reel. He's the founder of Relational Life Therapy and the author of the book, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Know to Make Love Work. And he'll also be a presenter in Sounds True's new Psychotherapy 2.0 online training summit. He'll be teaching on working with trauma in couples therapy, The entire psychotherapy online training summit takes place over seven days, beginning on September 7th, running through September 13th. And if you're interested in more information on Psychotherapy 2.0, please visit SoundsTrue.com. Terry, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. And dare I say... Oh, a total pleasure. Being real. Thank you. Thank you, Terry.
1: (laughs) Great. Thank you very much. It's It's been a joy.
0: SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.